0: One man was robbed more than 190 times, knocked unconscious at least four times, and had an eardrum burst aboard Chicago's L, each time with Chicago cops nearby watching, all in the name of public transportation safety. This is the story of Chicago's mass transit decoy squad of the 1970s. I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. This episode was inspired by my pal Steve Davern's stories about his dad, Jimmy Davern. A quick overview. Chicago's public transit system includes the L, a series of elevated tracks. That's where the L comes from. Some of which go underground into a subway system. For as much as the rail system in Chicago is amazing for those who need to get almost anywhere It has, at times, had a problem with crime. Hold for gasp. Now, for all the Chicago haters and people who think anything east of LaGrange Road is downtown, and that Chicago is nothing but crime, you should know that historically Chicago has seen worse times. Shootings, carjackings, there have been much, much more dangerous eras in Chicago's decades past. In the late 1960s, Chicago's rapid transit system had only a 60-man private security force. With the number of muggings, assaults, and murders climbing at an alarming rate, the Chicago Police Department stepped in, assigning a 200-man patrol to help counter criminal activity. Even with the added manpower, it is a big transit system, and criminals were getting good at being bad. Citizens started demanding better precautions be put in place to combat crime on the CTA. On May 21, 1971, the Chicago Police Department assigned two—that's two—canine units to also patrol the subway stations and platforms between 5:30 p.m. and 1 a.m. to step up protection on the CTA. That should do it, right? There was indeed a decrease in the number of crimes on Chicago's public transportation system. During the period from May 27th through June 23rd, there were 194 crimes, most of them robberies on the vehicles and properties of the CTA, down from 224 reported crimes for the period of April 29th through May 27th. While the city of Chicago is patting itself on the back for the slight reduction of crime, another high-profile incident would shock Chicago citizens and politicians and bring about the formation of the Mass Transportation Special Operations Unit. On Monday, July 5th, 1971, an 86-year-old physician named Dr. Julius Spiro left the Forum Cafeteria, where he ate almost daily. While walking through the subway station near State and Washington streets, Spiro was accosted, suffering a knife wound in the lower left side of his back. Staggering 14 feet to a cashier's window in the subway station, Spiro said to the worker, "'I've been shot,' before collapsing." Spiro died en route to the Henrotten Hospital, once located on Oak Street but long since demolished, where hospital employees determined the doctor had been stabbed. Julius Spiro was a practicing physician who was in the first graduating class at the University of Illinois Medical School in 1914. A noted collector of rare books and a Hebrew scholar, Spiro had practiced medicine at 55 East Washington Street, for more than 50 years. Alderman Seymour Simon of the 40th Ward called Dr. Spiro's killing shocking and inexcusable and asked the Chicago Transit Authority to demand that the city council investigate the extent of protection of CTA patrons. Quote, It is inconceivable that there were no police officers on the platform on a holiday weekend, Simon said. During such times, few people are in the subway station and CTA patrons don't have the company of other riders to protect them, End quote. Spiro's attacker, a 17-year-old, was arrested within days and sentenced one year later to 15 to 30 years in prison for his crime. The murder of 86-year-old Dr. Spiro, who was so closely connected to Chicago, drew even more attention to the inadequacies of police on the Rapid Transit L system. According to then-Deputy Chief of Patrol Thomas J. Lyons, quote, Our policemen ride trains and walk platforms and give the public a rising sense of security. But uniformed police really don't stop isolated crimes. The criminal can see a man in uniform, so he doesn't commit a crime when the policeman is around. But when he catches a victim alone, his chances are good. Lyons and other police analysts pondered the problem of how to discourage muggers. Quote, We finally got a simple idea. Make the criminal fear that the lamb he's tackling can turn out to be a tiger. End quote. The idea was to form a special operations unit of plainclothes officers who could ferret out the criminals, a decoy squad. For the record, the team was called the Mass Transit Special Operations Unit, but unless I'm quoting someone, I'm going to use the much easier to say decoy squad. Now, the idea of a decoy squad in Chicago wasn't new. One had been in use in Chicago in the early 1960s. Called the Tough Squad, Tufts stood for Tactical Undercover Function. When officers joined the team, their first task was to learn karate. This next part I'm going to read as it appeared in the newspaper. After mastering the art of karate, these tough, fearless policemen become pigeons, decoys to trap would-be muggers, jack rollers, and rapists. Shown here are two squad members being disguised as women, with nylons, perfume, and instructed in feminine manner of walking and smoking. Of course, I will have pictures up on the Chicago History Podcast social media pages for you to enjoy. And yes, I looked up Jack Roller. It is one who robs a drunken or sleeping person. In August of 1963, the members of the Tough Squad were asking for $600 more per year. That's about $5,800 in today's money. For hazard pay, the city wouldn't budge, so the decoy squad was disbanded and the patrolmen were transferred to four area headquarters around the city. Back to the summer of 1971, after Dr. Spiro's killing, Police Chief Thomas Lyons assigned four 10-man teams of undercover policemen to patrol the rail system in disguises such as students, hippies, this was 1971 after all, and the ever-popular drunk businessmen. This would later expand to even more creative get-ups. In the five months before the decoy program was instituted, there were 346 robbery victims. In the five months after, the number fell, but only by 26 to 320. Here is the good news. In the second period, 57 of the victims, I'm using finger quotes, were decoy cops. And in all of those cases, the mugger was arrested. During an interview with the New York Daily News, Lieutenant Charles Gary, who at the time was the night commander of the decoy squad, showed off a map with little color-coded flags showing where and what type of crime took place. Six of the flags represented robberies of decoys, all of which resulted in arrests, and only three flags were for robberies of regular folks. Quote, We police are taking the brunt of the criminal attacks instead of citizens, according to Lt. Gary. The daytime commander of the squad, who would later also serve as nighttime commander, was Sergeant Clarence Kerr, who had made a name for himself in 1955 as a young patrolman looking for a 26-year-old cop killer named Richard Carpenter. During the citywide manhunt for the cop killer, Kerr spotted Richard Carpenter at the Biltmore Theater, once located at 2046 West Division Street, and when Kerr attempted to arrest him, a shootout ensued. Kerr was seriously wounded. Carpenter was later captured alive. On September 18, 1971, Patrolman James Davern joined the decoy squad. Less than just two weeks later, he made his 12th and 13th arrests the hard way. Davrin was playing the role of the drunk businessman on the L platform at Lake and Cicero on the city's west side, when two brothers in their early 20s hit him several times in the face saying, Hey you, wake up. Davern yelled for his five-member backup team, which turned into an all-out brawl as the two brothers unleashed a torrent of karate chops and kicks, all against six cops. Two policemen from the Austin District Station joined in to help, and the pair of thieving martial artists were eventually subdued. In a later interview, Patrolman Davern explained how he learned his role as decoy. Quote, when the special unit was created in 1971, I interviewed people who actually were robbed on the train. I found out what they were wearing, where they sat, who they were with. I have to be convincing or we'd never fool anyone, said Davern. Other guys on the decoy squad included Paul Siegfried, Siggy to his pals, who on one occasion had a disguise of a beard, mustache, mod pants, and a long trailing scarf. Siegfried wore what was described as an elegant gold wristwatch and two gold rings and smelled of cheap bourbon, which he had patted on his face like aftershave lotion. Teddy Nadill, called the Gypsy because of his Latin good looks and long wavy hair, had a story he liked to tell. Quote, I was a decoy on the L train and pulled out a lot of singles and put them in my shirt pocket. This kid, 18 years old, was breathing right down my neck. He sat down right next to me, completely unaware that there were seven policemen all around me. Where did you buy your shirt? He asked me. I couldn't believe he was going to rob me, but a second later he whipped out a pocket knife and jabbed me in the ribs, drawing blood. Seven policemen jumped on him, just like that, but the shirt he admired was ruined. Based on the stories I read, most of the decoys wore shiny watches, which often served as a lure for would-be muggers. Although most of the decoy cops were bruised or bloodied in the course of their duties, some got hurt more than others. The worst incident occurred in late July 1971 at a State Street station. 27-year-old Irwin Martin, also known as John Black, approached a decoy cop named Fred Keto with an open pocket knife. Holding the blade to Keto's stomach, Martin said, "'Give me your money.' Kito handed over a wallet full of marked Bills and told Martin, "'I'm a police officer. You are surrounded. Drop your knife.'" Instead of complying, Martin slashed Keto's arm, severing an artery and cutting two tendons. Keto drew a service revolver and fired two shots. Martin seemed unfazed. A third shot was fired, at which point Martin fell to the ground, dead. Sergeant Kerr, patrolman Emilio Garza, John Wright and James Humphrey helped the injured cop to the hospital. It would later be revealed that because of his use of an alias, Erwin Martin had mistakenly been released from county jail while awaiting trial on armed robbery charges. While Fred Keto would eventually be awarded two police medals, the Medal of Valor for Bravery and the Blue Star Medal for Being Seriously Wounded in the Line of Duty, it was not long after the shooting death of Erwin Martin that Sergeant Kerr, Had his guys stop carrying guns while acting as decoys? Said Kerr, quote, I believe they're a lot safer that way. After all, the muggers have the draw on them. It's up to the backup men to move fast and protect them. Jimmy Davern explained in a 1974 interview that they also didn't carry weapons because an experienced mugger might spot it. Davern added, quote, If I get hurt, it's because of something I forgot to cover because I was overconfident. You have to be ready for anything. While doing research for the story, I noticed there wasn't a specific area where the decoy squad focused their efforts. They seemed to show up all over the city, likely to keep muggers unsure of whether to follow through on their evil intentions. There also wasn't a consistent age of criminals. 20-somethings, 50-somethings, 40-somethings, all were getting busted by the decoy squad. One story from 1973 involved 31-year-old Thomas Wilson, who was instructing a 15- and 16-year-old boy on the fine art of the two-finger reach and the wallet twist-away, pickpocket tricks, like some modern Fagin from Dickens' Oliver Twist. Of course, The teen boys were attempting all of this on the pretending-to-be-asleep decoy cop Jimmy Davern and were promptly busted. Sometimes things went wrong for the backup men. In one instance, patrolman Teddy Nadil fell asleep while acting as a decoy. One of Nadil's backup men was robbed of $3 by a mugger pretending to have a gun in his pocket. Fortunately, the other backup men swooped in and arrested the mugger. Late Wednesday, April 25, 1973, Patrolman James Davern racked up his 91st arrest. Davern and his partner were on the Wilson Avenue L platform when 40-year-old Robert Jones of the 4600 North Block of Kenmore attempted to rob the plainclothes cops. Both policemen were punched in the face but subdued the assailant who wound up at the Foster Avenue District lockup. The same police station featured prominently in episode 402 of this podcast about the Summerdale police scandal. By 1974, the decoy squad included four female officers, including 28-year-old Virginia Cronk, called Gus, by her associates, who was new on the force. Early on a Wednesday on what we now call the Red Line, Patrolman Jimmy Davern was dressed as a businessman pretending to be asleep when 21-year-old Louis Joe McAfee entered the car at 35th Street. Seeing only a sleeping man on one side of the L car and a single woman on the other side, the thief thought he was in the clear. The woman, McAfee would later tell police, quote, was too pretty to be a woman cop. Close to the 12th Street station, the thief grabbed Davern's watch and took off. He didn't get far. The pretty woman was patrolman Virginia Cronk, who jammed a 38 caliber revolver in the suspect's face and arrested him. He just couldn't believe it, Mass Transit Unit Sergeant Clarence Kerr was quoted as saying, he had never seen an undercover policewoman who was that pretty. The would-be thief's timing couldn't have been worse. The CTA station where he was arrested was a half a block from the Central Police Station at State and 11th, long since demolished. Another Virginia croc arrest came about when 43-year-old William Riley boarded a CTA train smoking a cigarette in violation of the no-smoking rule aboard the CTA. Kronk, in plain clothes, told Riley to put the cigarette out, but instead he chose to blow smoke in her face. He was promptly arrested. When Riley was searched, police found a carton of steaks worth about $300 stolen from a restaurant where the offender worked. See, kids? Smoking really is bad for you. One of the most theatrical decoy cops? That would be Arthur Novitt. When Novitt died in 2012 at the age of 89, Chicago Sun-Times writer Maureen O'Donnell explained why in his obituary. While Novit often disguised himself as a country bumpkin or a vagrant to attract robbers, it was when he donned a Superman costume that helped Novitt earn the nickname Superman of the Subway. To really amp up the Superman angle, he and his fellow police officers would pull the pins on doors of CTA storage closets. When a robber tried to steal anything from the decoy cop lying on the platform like a man on a bender, the Superman of the subway would come blasting through the door, which would go flying like his comic book counterpart, loudly proclaiming, Halt in the name of the law! Law and order will prevail in the subways of Chicago! As long as I'm in this metropolis, law and order will prevail. When the judge asked the robbers who took them down, one responded, "Superman arrested me." The judge allegedly sent him for a psychological evaluation. According to Novitz's wife, quote, "He used to dress up like a cowboy, like he just came from Texas. He had fake mustaches, he had fake sideburns, he put powder in his hair so it looked gray." Arthur Novitt was so convincing at disguising himself that a neighbor came by one day to tell him about all the strange men going in and out of his house. Novitt thought that this was so funny, he didn't even try to explain the truth, usually responding, Thanks for telling me. By October of 1974, the Decor team was getting on in years, at least for this kind of work. Davern was 42, and many of the other guys on the team were getting close to about the same age. Oh, I almost forgot. The decoy squad was such a big deal, veteran Chicago newsman John Drury featured their story on a 1974 episode of Eyewitness Chicago. According to the synopsis... John Durie spends a night with Chicago Police Tactical Unit D, the mass transit decoy squad, to show how Officer James Davern poses as a drunk to attract and arrest robbers who prowl the city's CTA trains and stations. According to Sergeant Clarence Kerr, crime on CTA trains had been cut in half since the special decoy unit was instituted. It seems word got around to the would-be muggers that the person they were thinking about robbing a L just might be a cop. The mass transit squad was disbanded in 1975 with the officers returning to regular duties. Chicago in the mid-70s was experiencing a rash of arson fires, and to combat this problem, the city needed the right guy for the job. They brought in Sergeant Jimmy Davern as unit leader. Chicago's arson stories will have to wait for a future episode. Devron was later appointed by Mary Jane Byrne to parking chief at O'Hare Airport. In April of 1989, then-police superintendent Leroy Martin requested a new decoy unit be formed to combat muggings and thefts on Chicago's transit system. The new unit's name? The Crime Assault Team. Hmm... This was the third time a DECO unit was formed in Chicago in 40 years, and who better to help train the officers than Sergeant James Dolan and Officer John Neary of the 1960s Tough Squad and Jimmy Davern from the 1970s Mass Transit Special Operations Team. Jimmy Davern's words of advice in 1974 about taking public transportation still hold true now. Back then he said, quote, There's safety in numbers. They should always sit near somebody, even if it's someone they don't know. And be alert. These people, meaning robbers, are bullies. They like to pick on defenseless people who are tired or who have had too much to drink. Chicago has continued to see crime on public transportation since the 70s, but with more than 33,000 cameras installed on buses and the rail system, many of them high-definition, there are more eyes than ever watching at all times. According to the Transit Chicago website, since 2011, this network of security cameras have aided police in the arrest of roughly 200 persons each year. In 2020, Chicago's police department launched the new Strategic Decision Support Center, which gives officers access to the network of cameras, which in turn helps them monitor incidents and respond more quickly. Still, with all this technology, I think I'd prefer to have a guy sitting behind me who looks like a passed-out businessman or a country bumpkin or a meat butcher, ready to pounce when danger is present. You know, someone like Jimmy Davern. Thanks for listening to this episode about Chicago's mass transit decoy squad of the 1970s. This episode was researched, written, recorded, and edited by me, Tommy Henry. Special thanks to Steve Davern for sharing the stories about his dad, Jimmy Davern, and for giving me access to the binder of press clippings. If you have questions about anything covered today, anything to add, or have an idea for a future episode, I'd love to hear about it. And I do mean here. You can leave me a voice message just by going to ChicagoHistoryPod.com and clicking on the microphone in the lower right corner. Depending on the content of your message, I may play it on a future episode, so keep it clean. That stellar art for the podcast you see used on the Chicago History Podcast social media pages was created by the Fertile Mind of John K. Schneider. If you need art for your project, reach out to John at JKS on Instagram or via email at AngelEyesArtJKS at gmail.com. I will be back soon with more stories from Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible. Just be aware of your surroundings. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe.